You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. Today's podcast is with Allison Taylor, who is a clinical professor at NYU Stern School of Business and the Executive Director of Ethical Systems, a research collaboration of prominent business school professors working on ethical culture. Uh, she has a new book. I loved it. It's called Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Allison Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So this is always a thing I enjoy. I typed up the notes for our conversation yesterday afternoon, uh, but then when I got home last night made myself and my wife a cocktail, and I sat down to scroll through Twitter. Yes, I still call it Twitter. Um, and uh, a tweet uh, popped out at me. It was from CNBC reporter Sarah Eisen's account, and it says, quote, Starbucks CEO Laxman Narasimhan, in an internal memo to his employees, addresses protests for the first time. In, he says in part, quote, many of our stories have experienced incidents of vandalism. We see protesters influenced by misrepresentation on social media of what we stand for. We have worked with local authorities to ensure our partners and customers are safe. Nothing is more important. Our stance is clear. We stand for humanity. And then he gets trolled. It is, mm-hmm. and there is, it is from the left. It is from the right. It is from the middle. It is, I mean, they're yelling about the coffee. They're yelling about Palestine. They're yelling about Israel. And it's still funny because my first question for you was going to be about how you opened the book talking about this guy and um, his, his like, in leaked uh, uh, conversations in 2023. Right. So uh, Starbucks is a wonderful place to start the conversation. And this tweet is also yeah. a wonderful place to start the conversation because one of the key arguments in my book is that who is yelling at you on Twitter, or another way to put it is often reputational risk, is not necessarily uh, a good gauge of anything. Uh, and then another key point is that if you try to keep everybody happy and you try to virtual sig- virtue signal about what, what a great company you are, that very often ends up with more people yelling at you than they other would, otherwise would have done. So these are two paradoxes, I think, uh, that lead to a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of uh, rather silly conversation, and that really aren't helping anybody who's trying to run a business right now. Yeah, and this is, th- there are many reasons I enjoyed the book, uh, and one of them was this acknowledgement that it doesn't matter if your position is 
right uh, or the words are are, are correct in, in any regard. First of all, you've got this this void that exists and um, uh, out, out in the internet, and and you don't you can't control your message anymore like like you used to. But also, it's just like it's too complicated. <laughs> there, are, it is just too complicated to understand all these elements. Certainly in regard to social media, but even more broadly, especially if you're talking about these big businesses. I mean, we get in trouble at Second City and we're a comedy theater. I can't even imagine groups that are dealing with supply chains that are all over the world, that are in various countries and and there's governments. And, And the intense complexity is something that I guess it just feels like people ignore uh, because they, because they, there's, there's no way of, of, of getting around it. What, you, talk more about that. Sure. Uh, whether people ignore it. I mean, I suppose one way to put this, right, is that we've completely lost track of what it means to be an ethical business in the 2020s. We have this very simple framework, which people clung onto for a very long time, and people still discuss a lot from Milton Friedman, where it says, focus on shareholder value and don't break the law. There's clearly still a lot of people arguing that that is a good way to run a business. But I say good luck with that messaging. Good luck saying that is the only thing you care about uh, with what today's consumers, employees, um, customers, etc. are concerned about. So then we have the question of if it's not, let's focus on shareholder value and don't break the law. What is it? And there we pretty quickly get embedded in a very, very, very confusing situation where also a high proportion of the public seem to be extremely cynical about business and have somewhat of a gotcha mindset where you make some single misstep and then, uh, you know, everybody is again piling on on Twitter, which I also still call Twitter. Mm -hmm. So, um, That's all very well. Uh, There are good reasons for that. I think we can all understand why one might be cynical about being a good business. But there are still people running businesses who have good intentions, who recognize the complexity, who would actually like to do their best and find out what this takes. And another comment I'd make is there's an enormous amount of bad advice out there. (laughs) Milton Friedman haunts this podcast like a bad penny. He... (laughs) This is like, if there is an enemy of this podcast, it's Milton Friedman. And it's funny, I don't know if you know, Second City's origins are at the University of Chicago. Uh, we, we started in 1959, but our predecessor, the Compass Players, these are all people who came out of the University of Chicago. The, the, the amount of incredible minds who were there in the 30s, 40s, 50s is is just staggering, right? I mean, uh, but this this idea of shareholder capitalism, which just is, is something we all grew up with and, you know, is is so clearly a, a, a thing of the past. And one of the things that you talk about, and you sort of refer to it there, you say in the book, quote, I've never come across a company that gets everything right, and I cannot name good or bad businesses, only better and worse ones. So this isn't, a, this is a book that is not about sort of finding those, like, like everyone knows the Enron story, right? This is like, you don't need to go into uh, depth on that. I'll tell you, there was a moment reading this book that really stuck for me, and I've been talking about it with the folks here, is when you talk about a potential solve, um, and that is a focus on human rights. And to me, this is a really radical, interesting idea of what if we just framed these things, when we're talking about HR, we're talking about ethics compliance, of a focus on human rights as a path that could really, I, I I dare say, satisfy 
many different sides to these arguments. I don't know that it's going to satisfy anyone. Uh, human well, okay, rights are certainly that. still contentious. Human rights are very politicized. China yells at the U.S. about its human rights violations. The U.S. certainly yells back. So I certainly wouldn't say this is a path to simplicity, but I would say that if you base uh, your ethics commitments on how your business actually impacts human beings, human rights has got a lot going for it. One, it considers this impact. Two, even more importantly, it considers the respective role of business and the government, which sustainability in ESG does not. Sustainability in ESG acts as if the company is just acting in a sort of vacuum and trying to figure out what problems it's profitable to solve and what problems it isn't without considering the role of other institutions. Um, And then thirdly, human rights is non-ideological and it says that individuals are allowed to have values and rights and responsibilities and that we should not impose our values on people that do not share them so i think that is also helpful because we're in this era where we have um enormous numbers of people who seem to believe that your corporation your employer or or the brand you buy from standing up on issues you care about like gun control and immigration and reproductive rights and climate change is somehow a good avenue of representation it's almost as if the 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 discourse is involved into uh companies are kind of like governments stakeholders are like the electorate and if we can whip ourselves up and push leaders to take positions that will somehow compensate for our lack of political agency and our lack of political impact that is more than understandable when i talk to students in the classroom they actually don't remember this era of business being neutral and republicans too and business not getting involved in politics i can certainly understand where these ideas come from we can all understand we're in a very dysfunctional uh, political era. But once you start to get into the idea that a corporate CEO can somehow represent its employees' positions on an issue like Israel and Palestine, you can quickly see that we've got into a really, really bonkers place here and we somehow need to get ourselves to a more sensible discussion and a more sensible position on what corporations can and cannot achieve. So, that's the modest goal of my book. <laughs> uh, but so this is interesting because in that thread on the tweet I was talking about, w- one person uh, responded like, "This is why companies shouldn't take a position; like they got to stay neutral." But I think it's it, my understanding is it's pretty common knowledge now that you can't. You can't. You. you I, I think, I, and I think from your book, what you say is like you can only be neutral if the thing it, that that is happening is it in no way connected in part to your business or your people who work for you. Is that is that correct? Yeah. I mean, and, and frankly, that doesn't stop people uh, uh, yeah. suggesting that companies should have a position if it's got nothing to do with your business. But yeah, the way I would put it is that that neutral middle ground, which is where business safely sat, we don't take positions. That makes perfect sense. If you're Walmart, why would you alienate half your customers? Customer base. Obviously, companies uh, at that time were spending across the political spectrum, so they have friends no matter who gets elected, but they're not making t- statements, they're not taking stands. That that uh, position has completely collapsed over the last 10 years, and now corporations uh, are regularly pushed to take yeah. stands on everything under the sun. 
there are some people, particularly on the right, uh, out there saying this is all ridiculous and business should go back to being neutral. But as I've said already, good luck out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the example I often use is, is Uber. Um, in January 2017, Trump, as we know, gets elected. Trump immediately institutes a, a, a quote unquote Muslim ban. Uh, there is a taxi driver strike at New York airports. Uber thinks focus on shareholder value and don't break the law. We'll keep operating our cabs. That is seen as, as as not neutral, and that starts the delete Uber hashtag. So yeah. saying it's got nothing to do with me and I'm just going to focus on shareholder value uh, is not the easy way out that some people uh, seem to believe it is. Mm. Uh it might surprise you uh, that Second City has found its way into the world of ethics. Uh, we have a, a, a product called Real Biz Shorts, which are really short, funny videos that accompany ethics and compliance training. So the general idea here is a lot of that training is really boring uh, and really long, and it's yeah. kind of about being done with it. It's about being complete, which in no way suggests that anyone has learned anything. Uh, However, what has been found effective is that if we can create a really funny video that is basically like, here's why you don't take bribes. Don't take bribes. (laughs) You know, that that's in there. So we go to these conferences, and then it turns out the improvisational pedagogy that, that exists at Second City, which is all about... When groups of people are making something out of nothing, we have things like all of us are better than one of us. Our job is to make our partner look good. These are all things that could live in a a paradigm of of ethics. Um, And uh, uh, one of the things that I loved about this book is the various myth-busting that you you do. And one of those is this idea of... um, uh, finding the the few rotten apples, you know, who who sort of uh, spoiled the, the the barrel. So, what what is the bad apple? Why is that a bad metaphor for for ethics? So, uh, compliance officers. Uh, this is another topic discussed in the book. Um, because of the federal sentencing guidelines, which is probably too wonky for this podcast, but basically the point is, if somebody in your company gets caught doing something bad, and you can say as a company. We trained everybody, we had policies, we had procedures, we had processes, we did investigations, and that all looks all right. Your corporation will not suffer from the consequences of that employee's bad behavior. So corporations have a very, very, very strong incentive to say the problem is not the corporation's goals, incentives, strategy, business model, leadership. The problem is that an employee woke up one day and said, today is a good day to pay a bribe. But I think, Kelly, you and I both know Mm -hmm. that when organizations become unethical, that is not because somebody just wakes up one morning and thinks about this um, out of their own volition. This is something, it's a slippery slope, it gradually. It it develops gradually. There is very often commercial pressure that contradicts with ethical guardrails. And so uh, we need to look much more closely at norms, culture, leadership, really the realities of human behavior, rather than telling this story that everybody likes to tell, that this is just some rogue employee. And one thing you'll notice, every time an ethics scandal hits the headlines, the CEO will be out there in front of the microphone saying, I have no idea how this could have happened. The head, the head of EW said it. No idea how this could have happened. Just a couple of software engineers. This is not credible, but companies cling to it because there are very strong regulatory incentives to do so. So in your career, and you talk about this in the book, at different times, you sort of spotted some trends at, 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 at different period. And one of them was in that period where uh, we started to hear the names Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. So, what what was what was happening in that in that regard that that sort of uh, uh, 
affected your field in the in the ethics ethics uh, world? Sure. So I, I spent twelve years uh, as a, in corporate investigations, uh, mainly in the Middle East and Africa, mainly investigating corruption in the early two thousands. At that time. Uh, a lot of information was not in the public domain. A lot of things were very opaque. The media was unreliable. You couldn't get documents. And I spent a lot of time running sources, basically, interviewing people on the ground, trying to find out what had really happened uh, with various kind of oil deals and transactions and business relationships. I had uh, an enormous amount of fun. This is just as much fun as it sounds. But very, very often I would be working for lawyers and compliance teams and I wouldn't be able to prove the intelligence uh, that I had gathered. I spent a, a long period in 2006-7 investigating uh, a company called Trafigura, which showed up in the capital city of Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa um, and through a contractor dumped enormous amounts of, of toxic slops all over the capital city and injured 30,000 people. I spent a, a long time investigating this case for an insurance company who didn't want to pay up. And we managed to gather a lot of very circumstantial evidence, but we couldn't prove intent. We couldn't prove that Trafigura had meant this to happen rather than had just you know, hired a bad contractor. But then in 2009, Julian Assange founds WikiLeaks. And one of the first leaks he does is internal emails from Trafigura that prove that intent. And wow. uh, time i've been operating in these really opaque jurisdictions i've been dealing with all these compliance teams and i look at this and i'm like wow transparency is such a weapon everything is going to change and now we're going to be able to hold the powerful accountable now as we know it's 2023 it hasn't quite worked out that way uh but certainly that notion of kind of uh not being able to control the narrative not being able to keep confidential information confidential, the rise of, of strategic leaking, I call it. So the rise of employees putting damaging internal information out into the public domain in an effort to hold corporations accountable is one of the things that I think has changed most dramatically in the landscape uh, over the past 15 or 20 years. We had Todd Cashton on the podcast a while ago talking about his book, The Art of Insubordination. And he talks about this idea because he's very much about people who challenge the system and all that. But also, it's a very, there's a very sobering uh, chapter or two on whistleblowers. And the results aren't great for these people. Oh. And we've mentioned a couple of them before, whether they're in jail or Russia or elsewhere because of what they did. And you talk about that in, in the book as well, that this whistleblowing although potentially noble, um, does not does not work out well for the whistleblower very often, if if at all. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we paid too much attention to the regulatory incentives. The, the U.S. government rewards whistleblowers. But uh, in real life, it is one of the fastest ways to ruin your career and be bankrupt and never get hired again and be retaliated again. So this is another thing I think that's really, really interesting about the way business ethics and culture has evolved over the last decade, which is, young people are far less likely to call the internal hotline and complain about fraud and bribery. One, they're more likely to be upset about something like my boss is a racist or my boss doesn't care about climate change than they are about legal violations that the company wants them to care about. 
And then two, they're less likely to sit in an isolated way and try and do the right thing versus get together with other employees, maybe form an Instagram group. And then, you know, and then uh, really try and kind of weaponize this information externally. A good example would be after George Floyd got murdered. And as we know, every CEO in America felt obliged to say how much they care about systemic racism and how distressed they are about this and how great their inclusion efforts are. The very next thing that happened was a lot of black employees, often in progressive companies, formed Instagram groups to say, essentially, I know the CEO says he cares about these issues. Here's what it's actually like to work here. Yeah, that that wasn't fun for a lot of <laughs> a lot of companies uh, at all. Uh, you also tell a story, and this is it, it's kind of funny. Uh, and I did not know about Brewdog, which is a Scottish brewer. So, what did they do at the start of the World Cup in Qatar in 2022 that got them in trouble? Yeah, this is a this is an argument again about kind of treating treating ethics and treating sustainability and treating corporate responsibility in general as empty PR is one of the things I really, really object to. Um, I think that the PR industry has not helped here. We have this whole notion of of managing reputational risk. Um, The problem with this idea, right, is that it divorces messaging from underlying behavior. It treats messaging like a defensive shield. And it says if you put out some empty statement out there, the public will believe it. And and, and sometimes they do. So Brewdog, uh, you know, very kind of uh, punchy uh, British sort of laddish beer company, the start of the World Cup puts out this very, very punchy ad about Qatar and human rights and bribery and and the World Cup. Uh, in an effort, I think, to look progressive and get young consumers to support it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few days later, is forced to say, well, uh, yeah, actually, we are still selling our beer in the Gulf and we are going to still run these matches in the pubs. And then uh, redrew attention to the fact there have been a lot of allegations about the fact there's an internal uh, culture of bullying and harassment. So that's the other interesting thing here. You can have very good sustainability scores, a very good account of yourself, you know, full of smiling children and glossy reports. And that might have nothing to do with how you lead and how you actually uh, treat your employees. So there's a disconnect, I think, in terms of kind of organizational culture and how you treat your people versus this very aggressive virtue signaling about sustainability and ethics that we tend to see out there. The public is clearly very, very, very tired of this. But I don't think it's, it's super surprising that companies cling to this sort of idea of let's tell our story and let's talk about all the wonderful things we're doing because we haven't really presented corporate leaders with a good alternative. Hmm. One of the things that uh, I enjoy is when I'm reading the books for upcoming podcasts and I find a passage that I'm really like, oh, this speaks to me. I'll post on LinkedIn. And it's all, and so I did with that with one of your, your uh, uh, passages and people really responded uh, uh, well to it. So I'll read it here real quick. Quote, Leo Tolstoy wrote that all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. When it comes to organizational culture, the opposite is true. It's hard to generalize about ethical culture, less because morality is subjective than because culture is unique and idiosyncratic. Conversely, unethical cultures have a lot in common. That's because they reflect absences. In unethical organizations, you'll find an absence of perspective, an absence of purpose beyond making money and defeating competitors, and an absence of awareness, end quote. Talk more about that subtraction that 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 you see in these unethical um, cultures 
So I suppose, yeah, I mean, uh, people are, again, you know, what makes a good business? What makes a good culture? And that's a little bit like saying what's a good person. So different cultures um, will have different strengths and weaknesses. I suppose the other thing we can say is culture is very, very dynamic. If you are not consciously building it and working on it, it's probably degrading. And so if you have an unethical culture, what you have is this, yes, this absence of effort on this, this absence of thought. That, and, and so I suppose what I would say is bad behavior fills a, a vacuum. So unless mm-hmm. you're making a conscious effort to set and think about a model culture, it will likely degrade. People talk a lot about tone at the top, um, and that can be very, very important. Clearly, leaders set norms. Uh, when you start a new job, you look at, you know, when your boss has lunch, when your boss leaves the office. I mean, another interesting point is very often we're not in the office observing these things anymore. So that is transforming culture. So certainly we look at how leaders behave to figure out what kind of conduct and what kind of behavior is valued and promoted in that organization. But in a big company, we're not watching the CEO in that way every day. And so it's not enough to be a good person at the top. You've got to build structures and systems and processes and incentives and norms that, that reflect your goals. Um, Edgar Schein, who's, a, who's, a, who's an old uh, theorist, had this idea about you know the gap between stated values and basic assumptions. So it's very, very common, for example, uh, for organizations to say we prioritize teamwork while actually rewarding individual competition. Right. When I ask my students about the, the, the values of the corporations they work for, they're often completely unmemorable. The students can't remember them. They're pasted on a wall somewhere. Probably one of them's integrity. MIT did a study that four out of nine uh, uh, value statements include the word word integrity. So it's a lot of these kind of empty, uh, meaningless, unmemorable buzzwords. uh, And it's not enough. But again, this is because it's very, very, very difficult. And we're overwhelmed with a lot of really bad advice. So I think there's I think there's overwhelming research that supports this, and it's certainly been my experience that really great leaders uh, tend to be very great storytellers, that they, yeah. that they, they understand how to craft a narrative. Um, and I'm curious with regard to that, what, what I talk a lot about um, is uh, for, for good leadership and good narratives is they often share a, a, a pain point. Uh, a struggle that no one wants your like vacation photos. They want to hear your fiascos and know that you're sort of standing through that. So is the, is there something in that idea that when you're in this this thorny world of ethics that uh, ethics that uh, a, a good storyteller, a, a, a shared narrative, a shared struggle is something that can help in this morass? Um, I think yes, because I think I mean what your question sort of implies this, right? You know. What we want to feel about our leaders is we're all in this together. Zelensky is the example I use in the book because he was offered a flight out of Ukraine at the beginning of the conflict. The U.S. government would have evacuated him. And he's like, no, I'm staying with my people. I think that's what good leadership looks like. Uh, Another really good example is is Hubo Jolie at Best Buy. When he takes over and, you know, Best Buy in 2012, I think he takes over Best Buy. That does not look like a good business at that time. You know, huge competition from the Internet, huge competition from Amazon. Um, and, and and what's happening is that customers are for very um, good reasons going into Best Buy, looking at all the equipment and then going home and getting it on Amazon. And so he uh, goes to the shop floor. He goes to the stores. He talks to people that are actually dealing with Best Buy customers day in, day out. He finds this out and he identifies this need 
for um, service and set up and help for our, you know, parents dealing with getting on the internet. And so he's really turned around Best Buy, but he's turned that around by listening. He's turned that around by uh, not sort of suggesting that you set strategy from the top down, you bark orders from the top, you incentivize everyone to perform, you sit and let the money roll in. He sees ethics and he sees culture as a collective effort. I think that's what we want. Um, and, and storytelling is a big part of that. But you want to feel your leaders are in this with you and have the same trials and tribulations and challenges that you do, I think, to really believe in them. Is that is that also why you like the term purpose? Because it feels like that is a that that's a sharing of purpose. I don't know that I like the term purpose because it's again used in this sort of very empty, uh, branded, driven way. But it, there's something here to explore. There is something here to explore about you know without some superordinate goal for your organization, you're just a loose assemblage of people. You need some strategy, you need some direction, you need some North Star. Uh, the problem, again, comes with, again, treating this as empty rhetoric rather than something that you craft and form uh, based on how you actually impact human beings, which brings us back to human rights. Yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. I, it, it's interesting because, I mean, the, the, and I, you know, the, the jargon is a problem, as, as, <laughs> as we all know and that you pointed out, um, but the sort of, the big reasons we're here, you know, you know, are, are things like, you know, are, are things like, like, like purpose and, and, um, yeah. uh, and, 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 you know, at Second City, of course, we, we are, we build ensembles, we, we build teams. And I think when we are successful, it's when we're leaning on the pedagogy and, and, and that, and when we become less successful is when we sort of move away from that. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had our fair share of problems in, in this, this area as well. Um, all right. We always end the podcast uh, asking our guests for a yes hand story. Do you have one for us? So, I mean, I thought this was such a funny question because my 2024 revolu- resolution is to try and uh, say no more. One of my problems is to be a yes, yes. hand. yes and i must say no could be a yes and no but i think uh i think uh what i would say uh everybody should consider saying yes and to is the opportunity to move to a different field or discipline or area of work this has not been lucrative for me i have changed career directions many many times i have very often taken huge pay cuts in the process but saying yes to a new opportunity field or direction i think has allowed me to see across topics and across issues in a way that would have been very very difficult if i just stayed deep as an investigator or deep as a political risk consultant or some of the things i did earlier in my career so i guess say yes to risks say yes to changing direction in your career we're all going to have to work to work 100 the way things are going so uh yeah take some chances out there and say yes to that crazy offer i like that i mean is that also tied to the idea that we 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 lack generalists uh now we seem to have so many people who are specialists I think that's right. I've, heard, I've recently heard this idea of the T-shaped model where you try and get deep in one area, but then also have this breadth. But I've really found that a lot of people really struggle to see um, 
see things that are very, very obvious in a different field and that you can take a concept from one field and put it in another. And it's very, very, very uh, helpful very often. So an example would be, as as we've already discussed, I spent uh, 12 years as an investigator. Then I moved into sustainability and, 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 and bringing some ideas about risk from corporate investigations and ethics into the sustainability world, I think allowed us to see the problems and challenges and solutions in a new way. That's just one example, but that has been my experience in general, is that if you have that breadth, if you have that curiosity, you are able to make connections in a way that is just hard if you spend all your life um, in working in just one area. Yeah, thousand percent. The book is called Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World. Alison Taylor, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Getting BSN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
recevoir.